So as we come again to this topic of work, I just want to ask all of us here, this is open discussion, uh, just a really basic question to kind of get us into it. Why do you work? This is not a trick question. Why do you personally work? Like, what's the significance of your work? God commanded us to work? Okay. That's great. Love it. What else? You need money. Why do you need money, Tara? Lights got to stay on with food on the table. Right. Right. Absolutely. Uh, you don't work, you don't eat. That's just kind of like a fact of life. Um, absolutely. Any, any other things? Yes. To move, go on. Right. Yeah, it can absolutely be fulfilling. Sometimes not so fulfilling, right? Depending on what work it is that we're talking about. Um, but absolutely, some of us work just for pure enjoyment. We love what we do, and then others of us are like, nope, I'm only working to keep the lights on. It just really depends on what that work is. Tim. We're called by God to do good works. Yeah, we're commanded by God. This is our purpose, our intention by God in redemption. Yes? Yeah, we work as a ministry to reach out to other people around us. Absolutely. Um, in fact, even when you say that, my, my mom, who's, I think she's in the nursery, she literally works to reach unbelievers. So, like, she's, like, doing these jobs that don't, she doesn't have to on the side, just so she can interact with people and be a minister to them. And it works. And she has... Bible studies with them, and they come to church. So absolutely. I think there's a lot of reasons we can work, and we've heard a variety of answers. And it really depends then on really, I think, the story we attach of our work uh, to ourselves. It depends on the story you attach to your work. Uh, for some in this world, as we talk with our coworkers, our friends, the unbelieving world, um, they work for achievement. They work for glory. They work to make themselves a name. That's what they want more than anything. Some others, they work for accumulation, right? They work for the purpose of just having wealth and, and comfort. Some people, the good Samaritans of the world, they work to make a world a better place. They really work in charity, nonprofits, and really, from their perspective, work is a means of salvation for these people, bringing them from dystopia to really utopia. So depending on the story you attach to your work, um, it can say different things. And so for all of us this morning, we really have to ask the question, who's at the center of the story of our work? As Christians, of course, our desire is to always be tying our story, our, our work, into the story of the Bible. And we do this because the Bible is the foundation for everything that we do. It's our framework for operating in this world day to day. And so it's important then to understand the story of Scripture as a whole so that we can tie our work into the story of the work of Scripture. So that's, that's what we're going to aim to do this morning. And we're going to be looking at the story of work in the Scriptures in four separate movements, creation, fall, redemption, 
and restoration. We're going to use these basic categories, these movements of Scripture to look at work. And then by God's grace, uh, we'll tie our work into this story from the big picture perspective. Now, if you haven't thought much about work before, I think sometimes we, we maybe operate that work is a result of, of the fall. As a young kid, this is exactly what I thought. We have to work because Adam and Eve disobeyed God, right? Um, and then when Jesus comes back, we'll no longer ever have to work again. Okay, that, that was like my perspective into the mind of a child. Uh, but again, as we look at the whole of Scripture, this is not the case at all when it comes to our work. Because when we look at the story, the beginning in creation, uh, we realize that work was God's original intent and purpose for his creation. When we look here, we realize that God is working over and over and over again, and it begins with him. In Genesis, we're told seven times that God created. And we're told 12 times that he made something. And all of this creating and making is summarized as his work here in Genesis 2.2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. So as we begin to work and look at work, we realize that it begins very much with God himself. But the crowning moment of God's creative work wouldn't be the creation of just the things that we see around us, but it would be human beings. And like the rest of creation, we made in God's image are the work product of God himself. But unlike the rest of creation, like I just said, we are made in the image of God. And so whatever else that might mean, there's a lot of things there. Aaron's working on his PhD on the image of God and man. What it in part means is that we were created to reflect God to the world. And if he's working, so we work made in his image. We were made to work. We're not meant to simply reproduce only but we're meant to subdue the world by ruling over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so again, I'll just say it one more time. Just as God worked, so now we're given work to do as we're made in his image and likeness. We do work that reflects the very nature of God himself. And so this comes into a clearer picture for us as we continue the the creation account. Because as God puts a man into this well-ordered garden, what does he tell them to do? He tells them to take care of it, right? He tells them to guard it. He tells them to watch over the garden and to work it. Name the animals. Yeah, he was given work. And Eve, who is created as his helper in the image of God, too, is meant to help in this work. And so this work given to humanity happened before the fall, right? And it serves really as a paradigm for all the work that we here do today. Work is created good, and it's really a part of humanity's calling. It's part of our purpose in the beginning. So as image bearers of God, 
We're designed to really find fulfillment and purpose in the work God's given us to do as we set in order creation, as we guard that order, and as we take care of it through diligent work. This is how God made us to operate and function. And whenever we step outside of that work, when we stop working, often we fall into depression. That's just a natural cause. We're not doing what God called us to do. So as we trace creation's account here, the main, main idea that we're trying to get at is this, right? The original purpose of human work was the advancement of human flourishing to the glory of God. This is how work was set out by God for us in the beginning in the church. And so that our work, in whatever realm that we might be a part of, whether it's in our home, in our church, in your workplace, it's to really show off the goodness of God and his character as his image bearers for the good of others around us. And as we cultivate, really, the garden that we have been put in and we've been entrusted with, it should bring about the flourishing of humans all around us and really bring praise and glory to God. So we recognize then that that work is first ascribing worth to God. It's imaging him in all that we do for the flourishing and prosperity of humanity. Now we understand, I think, here this morning that this is easier said than done, right? Easier said than done. Because we know that something happened between creation, right, and where we are today. And that second movement is what we're about to cover, the fall. We understand that work is made difficult because of the fall. But before we move to this next uh, movement of redemptive history, are there, are there any questions or comments on creation here as God set forth in the beginning? Tim? You mentioned, you mentioned ascribing work to God. You know, and of course, that's, that's worship. So we worship God in our work. And, and I think that, that is uh, very Right, yeah. As we, as we bring glory to God in our work, mm-hmm. um, we are worshiping God in our work. Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we worship... Obviously, obviously uh, within the, the, the frame of us being used. Yep. As we worship God, he's glorified, he's brought honor, he's brought glory. Um, yeah, that's, that's what we're trying to get at here. And it brings about the good of others around us. I mean, the two greatest commandments, love God, love neighbor as yourself... How do we love God with all that we... I mean, it brings about loving your neighbor, making him known through your acts of love to others. You, you bring glory to him. As you love God and love others, he's glorified. And work is trying to fit into that exact picture here as we bring about human flourishing to his glory. Um, so as we come then into the second section here, the fall... We realize that something went terribly wrong with our work. With this original intention behind work, we realize that something happened to it, right? It got distorted. It got messed up in the garden. Because we remember that Adam and Eve, who were meant to steward and guard the garden, failed to do so, right? They're given this work, and what do they do with the work? They, they neglect it. They don't do it. 
instead of protecting the garden, as they were called to do in their work, from the serpent and throwing that serpent out of the garden, what, what do they do? They, they have a treasonous conversation with the snake. And by the end of that conversation, instead of guarding and protecting the garden, the work that they were given to do, they take the serpent's advice and they abuse the authority God had given them. And as a result, they ruin everything. They ruin everything through this one act of sin and evil. And God, of course, confronts them. We know this. He confronts them lovingly and he asks them what they did. But as a result of their sin, they would have to face the consequences of their actions. Because of their sin, and really their failure to carry out the work that God had given them to do, they had to face these, these what we think, very severe consequences of the fall. And we find this really in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Three things, at least three, that happened to their work and ours. This is obvious to all of us, but the first thing is that work becomes toilsome. I mean, I mean, it just becomes difficult and brutal. Through painful toil, God says to them, you will eat all the days of your life. And the reality of the pain of our work is sometimes so obvious and sometimes so apparent that I think it's hard for us to imagine what it would have been like before the curse, right? Like, I don't understand how you can't have pain in work. That's more of our inclination these days. And even if you have a job that you, you love and are passionate about, there are parts of it that are still tiresome, parts that are tedious and just not fun at all. I think we all know that work needs to get done all the time, but we either lack the ability or the resources to do it. And it really is all linked, again, to the fall in the beginning. Work becomes toilsome. But then work also, in some sense, becomes futile. Even though Adam will painfully toil in the ground his whole life, the cursed ground under his feet will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. And so though Adam may have had many aspirations for his work, they will constantly outstrip reality and try as hard as he can. That will never, ever change. So inside the garden, the result of work was the expansion, really, of utopia, right? Paradise. But outside the garden, our work really never seems to quite produce utopia for long. Instead, there is this, this, there's this constant effect of decay and disintegration, right? We, we see that all the time around us. Our homes need constant maintenance. The AC will go out. The heater will one day go out. You need to replace it. You'll have leaks in your house from only God knows where, and you have to repair that. The garage constantly needs to be swept out. Rust builds up on our cars. Our gardens continue to need weeding nonstop, and natural disasters just completely wreck years of work in the making. And so outside the garden, nature really works against us as everything continues just to fall apart over and over and over again. It's like a, a sand castle, right, built by the ocean, just waiting for the next wave to completely wreck it. And in this, 
we find the words of God to be true in this curse. Our work seems to be futile at times. It falls apart at the end of the day without intervention. What we find then is that these first two, our work is toilsome and futile. I think, I think it runs against the assumptions of our modern world today. As Tim Keller observes, our generation insists that work be fulfilling and fruitful, and that it fully fit our talents and our dreams, and that it do something amazing for the world as one Google executive described his company's mission. And and this sounds great, right? This is what we all want. It's what we desire. We want work that is deeply fulfilling and fruitful, and that it fits our passions, our desires, our dreams, so that's not painful. But even as we look at this curse given by the fall, we realize that this is not always an option at all. In fact, it runs counter to the curse of what God has enacted due to sin. And so I think sometimes we're tempted to give up on work entirely. We, we face depression. It's like, this is, is, is my work really doing anything in this world at all? And the reality is we can't give up, though, because even as we were mentioning early, we realize that our work is also compulsory. Work is now compulsory. It's forced. We must work to merely survive, to merely exist. So where work was more so for pleasure, work has now, as a result of the curse, become a means of survival. There's an urgency to our work. We must work or starve to death. Work or not have shelter over our heads. And so it's not that work has now become bad. Okay, that's not what we're saying. It's not that work is punishment. It's just that in a fallen world, work is toilsome. It's, it feels futile. And it's absolutely needed, or we will not make it. So these are some three of the outward effects of the fall on our work and us as human beings. But then we also have to realize not only did we face these really external metrics, these external changes to our work through the fall, but we also suffered internal consequences that affect our work too. Now in a fallen work world, Fallen workers no longer use their work to worship God, as was the point in the beginning, right? But instead, we use our work to really worship idols, which we see with Israel, and we worship ourselves. We worship idols and ourselves. We're turned inward. We're turned into self-seekers. So where our work was really initially about glorifying God and the good of others, now it's all about me. It's not about your good. It's only about my good. We've turned inward, and our work now is often tainted by greed, selfishness, and dishonesty. And in our workplaces, I think we've probably seen a plethora of evidence of this reality. Now in work, people will step on each other and take credit for work not their own just to get ahead. Corporations will cut corners to save money and in the process endanger their employees Engineers will ignore design flaws due to laziness or cutbacks instead of rectifying the situation. Marketers will lie to their consumers just so they can sell more of their product to you. And and, and the list just goes on and on and on and on, right? Our work has become tainted by the worship of self. 
I think this is powerfully portrayed then in the story of the Tower of Babel, as we turn our minds back there again to Genesis. In Genesis 11, 1 through 4, we read that the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, the work here that they're doing is not all bad, okay? They're developing technology. They're building a city. They're pursuing human flourishing. And this really is good. But they, they want something else that taints it completely. They wanted identity. They wanted to make a name, not for God, but for themselves, right? Not for God, for themselves. And so while work was initially intended to make much of God, they're turning it back to themselves. And this is the evil. They wanted to find their identity in their work, in their own greatness, rather than the greatness of the God we were created to worship and work. In fact, they want to do this in contradiction to God's calling to humanity in the beginning, right? Because what did God tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? Fill the earth. What do they want to do? Let's gather ourselves together and not do that. Let's gather ourselves together and not be scattered across the globe. And so they're, they're working against God's intention in this work. So it's become self-centered. The work is no longer about looking at God, but it's instead of looking at me. And as Augustine puts it, they are seeking to reflect their own glory to themselves rather than God's glory back to him. So in this fall, then, where we see work turned inward, there are at least two different and, and I think sometimes simultaneous expressions. I think on the one hand, some of us are tempted then to define ourselves directly by our work, our accomplishments, our successes, just as they did at Babel, right? It's all about me. That's the, that's the one temptation on this side. We want to define ourselves by our work rather than using it to point to God. On the other hand, others of us are tempted to define themselves by freedom, right? Freedom from work, right? Freedom from work with their leisures, their hobbies, and their recreations. So rather than being defined by work, I want to be defined by my freedom from it. And the two are really just opposite sides of the same coin. An idolatry that defines our identity by our relationship to work rather than to God. So as we try to, again, like trying to summarize all this, try to capture it all, main idea, the problem with our work is that we've lost the connection between God, work, and worship. This is the main problem at the core at the fall. And sometimes we, we debase our work, we look down on our work, and we don't see it as a worship of God. Work is instead a necessary evil so that we can party on the weekends. And sometimes, again, on the other side, we idolize our work 
and worship it and find our meaning and purpose in it and not God through it. And so work becomes everything to us. And so these are the two sides of the spectrum that we see all around us in society today. And so wherever, wherever you stand on this spectrum in relationship to your work, the temptations that you feel and know, I want to encourage us to, to battle against both of these extremes, right? We need to battle against this fallen nature um, in the beginning. So how do we do this, right? How do we fight against this problem? How do we fight against not disconnecting our work from worship to God? I mean, this, this is obvious, but we need then to connect our work tangibly and concretely to the worship of God. We have to think through this together with your spouse, with friends. How is my work connecting to ultimately the worship of God? So I want to give us just some, some starter case scenarios for all of us of how you might do this. Uh, for instance, parents or, or child care providers who work with children or vulnerable people work to showcase the goodness of God's love and care toward them. They are caring for the widows, the orphans, the most vulnerable in society. And so in their work, they're connecting their work to showcase God's love and heart of compassion for these children, these people. That's a means of thinking through how my work connects to who God is and what he is showing to us. Help me to be the hands and feet of God in this work, showing who God is to these people. People who are farmers, providers of food, right? They act to provide the daily bread that we pray for each and every day, right? Give us this day our daily bread. And farmers, providers of food, act to provide that bread each and every day, being the hands of God and providing for our needs. We connect our work to who God is and what he's doing. People who provide transportation services, uh, large quantities of material, food, livestock, equipment, in their work are providing and serving the society's good. And without their work, society would greatly suffer as the needs would not be met. So they, they provide in this way as they transport needed materials across the globe. And the same is true for firefighters, police officers, EMTs, as they act as the hands and feet of God to mitigate evil in our world and in our society at large. They are really embodying, right, God's justice, mercy, and relief to those who are hurting and in pain, and in their work, they showcase God's justice, mercy, and relief as they provide for others around us. And so the list goes on and on and on. And I don't know all of your work situations. I don't know what all of you do. But we need to constantly be fighting to think through how does my work demonstrate God's character, likeness, and goodness to others, and how does it benefit society as a whole? We need to be thinking in those ways. And so while it's tempting, again, to view our work as drudgery, our desire should be to connect our work to the bigger picture at hand. So it's not drudgery, nor is it everything, but it's connected to the bigger picture. How is my work showcasing God to the world and benefiting society as a whole? So this is the fall. Any, any questions or comments on this section? I need time to drink my coffee. All right. We'll continue on then to movement three. We have creation then. We've seen that work went wrong with the fall. 
But then we also realize that there is redemption, right? That's where we're heading towards in the biblical narrative, redemption. And in this redemption, we find our own work redeemed by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. His father, his adopted, uh, adoptive father, Joseph, was a carpenter. And it's likely that Jesus took up this work after his father. He was a carpenter. But as you know, Jesus wasn't only a carpenter. He would also be a teacher. And though I think it might be maybe a little bit of a stretch to say this, I think we can say that Jesus in his life dignifies both blue-collar work and white-collar work. He did both of them, and he brings dignity to all the work that we do. And so all of this would be a part of the work that Jesus would accomplish for the Father. For as John 17 tells us, I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And so in Jesus, we see his true work as the redeemer of us all. He would pay for the penalty of our sin through the death on the cross. He would rise from the dead so that we who repeat, uh, repent and believe in him can be forgiven of our sins and ultimately redeemed from the curse set forth in the beginning. And so it's in this redemptive work that we again find our own work in following after Christ. But it's here I, I think we need to make a clear distinction because while Jesus' work redeems us, right, it, he, it redeems us, his work does not fully free us from the curse originally put forth on work, okay? I think that's obvious, but I want to make sure we say that. So for both Christians and non-Christians alike, even though Jesus has redeemed us, our work is still under the curse. For our work is toilsome, right? It's still toilsome in this fallen world. It still feels very futile. It still feels very forced until Christ returns. And so if this is the case, what difference does our redemption then really make for the story of our work? And while redemption doesn't change our work conditions per se, it does change us, right, from the inward out. So we need to recognize that when Jesus redeems our hearts, it really then redeems the motive behind our work. So our work can be redeemed now as we have the right motive, again, behind work set forth in the beginning, which was what? To love God, make much of him, worship him. Our work is redeemed as we follow God's unchanging norm, his word, his Bible. We work according to the commandments given to us by God. We have new hearts that no longer steal, deify wealth, or lie. Instead, we work according to God's good commandments and in this redeem our work. And of course, the right goal, as we've already talked about, the glory of God and the good of all people. It's no longer about us. It's no longer self-centered. And while we still feel the effects of the curse on our work, it's being redeemed as we make it once again about God and the good of all people people. So it's transformed then by Christ's selfless work for us. And this is, I think, what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 2.10, right? We know 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, gift of God, not of work, lest any man should boast. We cut up verse 10 all the time. I don't know why we shouldn't. Keep going forward. Don't forget this part. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He's redeemed us toward this end. And so in the redemption Christ has given us, 
he redeems us for good works with the right motive, the right norm of the Bible, and the right goal, the glory of God. So again, to try to summarize this once more, people are redeemed, but their work still remains under the effects of the curse. We all feel that. But because we are redeemed, work is no longer about our name or about our glory. It's about God's name and his glory. That's what we're trying to capture here. So because we're redeemed and recreated, we can, again, go back to the original intention behind work, which is to worship God. Now, as we seek to live out lives as, you know, redeeming our work, I want to just give three different types of people in regard to the work, we've talked a lot of, you know, theology. I want to try to bring this to bear on us a little bit more through just, just illustration. And this illustration doesn't come from me, but it comes from the book, Work That Makes a Difference. So again, um, as I go through this illustration, it's not from me. It's from uh, Daniel Doriani. But in this book, he describes three people um, that might help us figure out where we are on the spectrum of redeeming our work. And, and the first person he describes is the pragmatist. And the pragmatist sees work basically as a secular activity. For the pragmatist, <clears throat> family and church, they're sacred spaces, right? And the, and the pragmatist has high standards there. But when he goes back to work, he parks his morals at the door and does whatever it takes to get ahead. <clears throat> he forgets that Jesus is Lord of all, but he is right about one thing. Workers do need to deliver results, and pragmatists often excel at doing this. Okay, so that's, that's the first person that we can fall into. Though we're redeemed, we often just see our work and our redemption of our work as two separate things. The second person, then, that he talks about is the witness. Uh, the witness is basically the opposite of the pragmatist. Uh, the witness emphasizes personal morality in the workplace. She works hard, respects everyone, operates with integrity, and hopes to create a platform for sharing her faith. It is true that a beautiful life adorns the gospel, and everyone should be quick to share their faith. But if the witness thinks first of evangelism, she can really then neglect the work she's given to do by her employer. And this damages everything, including her witness. And so this then brings us to the, the third category, right? And he calls this category the prince, right? This is what we're all striving for. The prince wants to share his or her faith. And like the pragmatist, he longs for results. But the prince also believes that Jesus rules every inch of life, and they delegate their authority to others who think the same way. And so they strive to have the right balance of both hard work and that demonstrates results as a good employee and a heart of love for people around him. Uh, then he then goes on to, to give an analogy of Dorothy Sayers, um, and, and she gives a good example of the prince who describes the way a Christian carpenter's faith should really shape his work. So she says, Dorothy Sayers says, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter, she said, is usually confined to exhorting him to not be a drunk and his leisurely out hours and to come to church on Sundays. But the church should tell him that his religion first requires him to make good furniture. No crooked, tab uh, crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. 
and the church has forgotten that the secular vocation is sacred. Work must be good work before it can call itself God's work. And so the very first demand religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. He should be a good employee of whatever he does. So as we think about redeeming our work in these categories, we should strive, hopefully, to be that prince or princes, however you want to describe that, recognizing the importance of relationships and morals with others, as the witness does, but then also remembering that the quality of our work is also a reflection of God to others around us. Maybe you've met this person before. Have you ever met that coworker? Very outspoken about their faith, but they're just terrible workers, and I just wish they would not say a word at all because their testimony is horrendous. Sure, they're crazy about Jesus, but their work is awful, and I just want them to just be quiet. You are not reflecting Jesus here at all. And so again, that's, that's one example maybe you've experienced, maybe not, but it does damage. It does real damage. So we need to really take that to heart. And at the other, at the other side of the spectrum, not being a pragmatist where we're only down to business about work, and Christianity has no say about how we treat others at all. So we got, what, we got these two extremes then and, and application today just for yourself. Just think about where you might land on this spectrum between the pragmatist and really the witness. Which one do you need more of so that we can be the prince and have the right balance of both in our work? Um, we need to keep moving. Any, any questions or comments then on, on this section, this example, illustration? All right, we'll keep moving on then to this final part, restoration. Restoration, creation, fall, redemption by Jesus, redemption of our work, and ultimately, in the end, restoration. Being fully restored is the hope of us all, I think. We want our work restored from the curse so that it's no longer painful or toilsome. And I think this is what Paul is getting at in Romans 8. Or Aaron will tell me later on that I'm totally off here. I don't think that's the case. But Romans 8, 19, Paul says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, to toil, to pain, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated, freed from its bondage to decay, and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So when we're, we're looking at this, I think Genesis 3 is in the back of Paul's mind here. For in the fall, we recognize that all of creation, as we've been talking, has been subjected to frustration, pain. We feel that in our work each and every day. That's our world. But I think Paul is saying here that one day the conditions of our work, the pains that we suffer through it, will change once again. And work will no longer be toilsome. It will no longer be futile. It will no longer be forced. Instead, there will be glorious freedom when God makes all things new and he frees creation. And in the beginning, as it was before, we will be free to tend the garden apart from the curse any longer. And we will be restored to worship God and glorify him as was intended in the beginning. I think Isaiah 65 captures this for us well. Behold, I will get, create new heavens and a new earth the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. They will build houses and dwell in them, 
They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord. And so this vision given by Isaiah comes to fruition, I think, in Revelation 21. In the new Jerusalem, the garden, which has become a city, the city of God where he dwells with his people. And it's here in the end that we really find a new beginning, right? A new beginning of our work, our creativity, our industry, our labor used for God's glory and the good of others around us. A work that will no longer see the effects of, of sin or the curse upon it. And so even as we quoted Tim Keller earlier about how our generation insists that our work be fulfilling and fruitful and that it fully fits our talents and our dreams and that it'll do something amazing for the world, for the Christian, this will one day be, be true for all of us. We will find our work completely fulfilling and fruitful that fits all that God created us and intended us to be. And it won't be to make the world a great place, but it will be to showcase the glory of God first and foremost above all. And so this is the end. This is the end, the restoration, the end, which is a new beginning. And if we see this end, it'll help us then so that, again, we don't fall into that pitfall of seeing work as an end of itself or, or, or that it's an evil to be minimized or a God to be worshipped. But as we understand the story of work, we understand that the end of work is God himself. And that will change our work, it will energize our work, and it will help us continue to endure our work when we continue to face the sufferings involved. So these are the four major movements, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And next week, Tyler will continue to teach on the importance of work. Today, I think he has military drill, is that right? So he'll be coming in hot next week, ready to go, and uh, we'll continue to study this important topic. Any, any closing comments or questions before we pray? All right, we'll pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy to us. Thank you for the work you've given us to do, and that even though it is sometimes painful, often painful, and, and toilsome, we thank you that it is being redeemed for your glory and the good of others, and that one day our work will no longer be painful, uh, but will only bring pleasure and joy as we work for your glory and the good of others without the effects of the fall. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to have Christian testimonies, good work ethic, help us to share the love of Christ with others, with a good work ethic to back it up. And may we, Lord, showcase the likeness of Christ in all that we say, and in all that we do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you are dismissed.